1: I can't tell you how many people have asked in any of my presentations over the years, Rain, what is the perfect story structure that I can use for my storytelling? Is it the hero's journey? Is it the story spine? Is it five act? Is it three act? Listen, none of that matters if you don't have something to say, or at the very least, a unique way to say it. Lucky for you, that's exactly what I'm going to talk about with my guest in today's show. What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab Podcast. This is episode 139, and today my guest is Paul Gio. Paul Gio is a, as he puts it, I love the way he says it, he has been putting screenwriter on his tax returns for over 30 years. I love Paul's take because he addresses the structure issue Face on. I mean, this is something that uh, that many gurus and storytelling coaches and experts, you know, myself included in that bunch, focus on a lot when they are teaching people how to be better writers, screenwriters specifically in Paul's case, or storytellers in my case. And here's the problem with that approach: you reduce something that is so profound and magical and individual to science to math to formula now here on the show you know we talk about the art and science of storytelling in my opinion it is both you can't completely neglect certain things like that but people are always looking for ways to make things easier for themselves and they do that one of the ways they do that is by asking for the exact recipe and here's the problem if everyone is following the same best practices recipe, well then the output, the cake that they will bake in this metaphor, they're all going to taste the same. And you will never stand out as a writer or a storyteller or an artist or a creative if you sound and look like everyone else. What Paul focuses on, and I will also say in my defense, even though I do talk about structure what I focus on too and you can track it back on on the show is finding your unique voice. None of it matters. No structure that you use will matter if you don't have something unique to say. You have to find your own voice. What is the story that you tell? What is the way you tell your stories? And then you can focus on things like structure and editing and rewriting. But you have to understand how to find your voice and make it unique. And then you have to be disciplined and show up every day. And then you have to do the damn work. And that's how you become a professional writer or professional screenwriter or professional storyteller or any kind of artist that uses their minds as their skill and their talent. Paul has a brand new book called Kill the Dog, and I absolutely love it. And listen, he, he does not mince words. It is a direct rebuttal to the super popular screenwriting book Save the Cat, which I have read, as many others have as well. Kill the Dog is the antithesis of Save the Cat, which reduces everything down to a formula. There is no magic. There is no voice. It is literally, at page 12, do this. At page 35, do this. Find your title, find your logline, and nothing about how to find your voice and how to be a great writer. So many of us focus on being a great content creator or being a great writer or being a great storyteller or filmmaker, and not enough of us focus on the process and falling in love with writing, falling in love with content creation, falling in love with storytelling that's what we're going to talk about right now. This is my conversation with Paul Guillo, and I hope that you love it. I sure did.
0: Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience. To leave the greatest impact possible and now here's your host award-winning filmmaker and writer rain bennett
1: what's up my beautiful people welcome to another episode of the storytelling lab where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling my name is rain bennett i am your host and my job is to help you deepen your connections increase your sales and serve your audiences better every tuesday morning i send out a quick storytelling tip to my newsletter subscribers I show you techniques I've learned along my journey and used in my own stories, as well as those of my clients. But most importantly, I leave you with tangible takeaways that you can apply to your brand storytelling immediately. Oh, well, actually, more importantly than that, it's free. If this would help you, sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Paul, Welcome to the show. Um, I'm excited to to have you here. I will tell you this. I didn't tell you before we started recording that there was there was some selfish motivations to ask you to be on the show. Um, But uh, that's not unusual for the storytelling lab and the audience still benefits baby. So it's a it's it's okay, but just, you know, all things transparent. Glad I'm to be here. Man. I might be here to pick your brain a little bit too. I'm, I've am i been transitioning sl- slowly from the documentary world to the narrative world. So uh, I, I do a, l- a little bit different writing, but certainly have lots of stories that I'd like to tell. Uh, the first thing I want to say to you is uh, um, I'm excited. You kind of hopped on, uh, on the show so quickly. I've been into the book, haven't quite finished it yet, but I know that your style, I know what you typically address and talk about. I got to say, in the book, your take on writer's block just blew me away. Just the best <laughs> chapter by far in the whole piece, Paul. Um, so unique, such a fresh take. Like, everyone should buy the book just for that chapter That's alone. the best
3: thing you could have said to me. Buddy, it, it,
1: it, it got an audible reaction from me. <laughs> At first, there was a little confusion. It was like, oh. <laughs> yeah,
3: after, it, what's funny about that, I, I won't give it away, but it's I've had more than a couple of people go, Hey, I think there's a problem here. <laughs> it's so good.
1: It was so good. But I, but, but to to that point, this is one of those cliches. I think we might talk about a lot of cliches today. Uh, one of these cliches that you hear often, or maybe maybe it's limiting belief, imposter syndrome. But I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, 2017 or 18, I was in a small event. I met Seth Godin. Um, oh, you're yeah? not in your head, so you're familiar with him. And he had this. <laughs> Only Seth could have this rectangular water bottle It looked like a book, the size of a book um, To match his, you know, yellow glasses that nobody else in the world has And it said, so I'm paraphrasing but basically said, like, writer's block does not exist Or there is no such thing as writer's block And so he literally carried it around this transparent water bottle that he had To that point do you agree? Do you disagree? Like, what are your thoughts on this term of like, I, I'm as a writer, I'm blocked creative. Is that a thing that exists? Or is that a thing that we completely fabricated in our minds?
3: I mean, my my opinion is it's all semantics. I mean, I think I think there's, it, it, it has to exist in some form. Otherwise, if you, you know, go back to the origin story, like it, it wouldn't have just been born out of nothing. Like there's writers who are, who get blocked. And I think it's just a term for I'm not able to do anything in the moment, you know, and, it, and, it, and people have just abused that term so much that now it's become a thing. Does it even exist or not? And, and I mean, whatever label you want to put on it, I certainly have days where there's just nothing coming. Yeah. And you can call that block, writer's block or you can just say, hey, I had a bad day, whatever. I think people get hung up on the label.
1: I agree. And it doesn't just exist for writers, right? Like if you're a basketball player, you have off days as well, right?
3: You're just exactly. not, they're yeah. just not syncing. In, in, in any space, like even, you know, people in the business or people in the assembly line making widgets, you know, you've got bad days where you quality control doesn't, you know, or you blocked that day. So
1: when those days happen, what's your advice? Like, or, or how do you approach it rather? Do you, do you churn through it or do you just say chalk it up and be like, it ain't one of them days.
3: I, I've learned. So let me preface this by saying every writer's process is different and unique to them. There's, sure. no, there's no wrong way to do it as long as it works for you. My for me, what I've learned through years of trial and error is I I need to be kind to myself. I will. I'm very disciplined as a writer. I'm I'm up at the same time every morning, six days a week. And when I'm just not feeling it, I, I won't immediately just walk away. I will, I will try to do, I will do little, you know, like Jedi mind tricks on myself trying to, you know, maybe I'll work on something else or I'll try to do some other sort of creative stimulation thing just to get the wheels spinning. But when that doesn't work, I have to walk away. I've learned that regardless of whether I'm on deadline or not, I can't force it. When I force creativity, the product, the end result is awful. And so I will just punt. I punt the day and I just like it's part of the life and I forget about it and I come back at it the next morning.
1: I think that's that line of just be nice to yourself and give yourself some grace is something that we overlook just as people, right? Not as writers, but yeah. everybody so so often so much and and it can be really corrosive uh i think when you i i tend to do that i'm like tough on myself um and you spiral i spiral if you start that kind of negative self-talk so i think that's just that little nugget right there exactly. is so good
3: it's a mental health thing man you know 100
1: and 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 i think we're starting paul to move culturally out of this like just grind it out and hustle harder you know mindset that was so pervasive but and and I'm I'm glad about that because I don't necessarily think you know squeezing it is is not always maybe never you know the right answer just if you know yeah and- I, mean,
3: I I agree I think the grind is in the discipline of of showing up every day and working at it the grind isn't in I'm gonna force myself to not get out of this chair until I write a hundred words or something that's not the grind that's beating yourself up and and you just have to be self aware enough to know some days it's, it's hard to get started, but you stay there and you eventually get rolling. And then there's other days where, Hey, this is just not a good day. I'm going to punt.
1: When you show up, you said the same time, six days a week for writing, what's your like threshold or when is this a s- successful day for you? Is it a page count? Is it hours that your butt's been in the chair, no matter how much you've put down, or do you measure that at all?
3: That's the other thing is I, I don't, measure it at all. I don't put any, any word count, page count on it. I used to do that. And again, I have learned through trial and error that I'm better when I take that pressure off myself. So I'll have, I start, I'm up by five usually every day, sometimes 5.30. And I, I have my little French press. I have a whole routine that I do every morning. And then I sit down and I go to work and some days, and I'm talking about the days that I'm actually getting stuff done. I'll, I'll be spent three or four hours into the day. And I just feel that's it other days. It's really happening and I'll go six, seven, eight hours. And I never, I never know what the day is going to be like. I just go until I just feel like, okay, my tank's empty. Mm-hmm. I got I'm I'm done.
1: How important is it to have a consistent routine in terms of productivity, in terms of producing content?
3: I I believe it's everything. I, I believe I, I think again, like you mentioned the kind of the culture shifting and I, and I think there's a lot of positives to that. And then there's also some negatives that there's the shift now that it's like I see a lot of on you know the different apps. you know, um, ever since self-publishing became a thing like like 15, 20 years ago and now you know anybody can write a book and throw it up on on Amazon or whatever. And, that, and I see a lot of these people as just like, you know, I just write whenever and it's OK not to write every day and just whenever you feel like it. And, and like that's fine in that context. But if you're really serious about you want to do this for a living, you want to make a career at storytelling. I think discipline is everything because it's. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the muse and I'm very much a, a muse guy, like when the muse shows. And I believe I think Stephen King talked about it in his book on writing that if you're not in that chair every day, if you're not at it every day, the muse isn't going to find you. Like you've got to be there every single day so you can have a hundred hard days in a row so that one day when the muse shows and you hit that flow state where mm-hmm. it's just coming out of you before you can even think about it, that's that's the discipline. I think that's the result of being disciplined.
1: I totally agree. And I also feel culturally we're, we're starting to understand that these walls we've put up between like a creative endeavor and a, an entrepreneurial endeavor or whatever, like they, they don't really exist. So the approach is the same. I know you're a friend, a, f- a fan of um, the war of art. I've seen you uh, post about that book as well. And I think that might've been the first time it said that someone said it so clearly, like, this is not art and has to be, you wait for, you know, creativity to strike or whatever. It's a job. It's a it's the same thing as the basketball player I talked about who shows up at 4 a.m. to hit the gym and do layup and do drills, right? And for so long, I feel like whether it was business, athletics, art, we looked at them like the approach must be different because, the, you know, the output is so different. And I don't think it is. And I think other people are starting to realize that. I the,
3: totally agree, yeah. And I, I'm a big, big fan on and off the court of Kobe Bryant and, and what he stood for and his mentality, you know, they call it Mamba mentality and all that. And, and I'm a huge sports fan. And when you look at the Kobe's and the Michael Jordan's and, and, you know, from, from all the, the Gretzky's, whatever sport, the difference, what made those people different is their work ethic, not their talent. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a great interview with Kobe Bryant who says, Shaq could have been the greatest, most dominant basketball player in the history of the game, but he had no work ethic. So he Mm -hmm. just relied on his sheer God-given physical force and talent. And Kobe's like, if he had worked as hard as I work, he would have been no question the greatest player in history. And and it's really when you look at Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, or like I said, Gretzky, any other sport, it's the work ethic that separates Tiger Woods. I mean, nobody worked harder off the course. Nobody grinded harder than that cat. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Uh,
1: so often people overlook that or think I've had this conversation with my wife before about someone who's not to throw her, her under the bus. Sorry, babe. Uh, <laughs> who's for someone who uh, who was a dancer. Right. And and there is some like Shaq was born that size and, and he could he could depend on the command of just that body alone. Um but and so I say that to say there are some natural gifts. So I think sure. some people might have the gift of rhythm. But this person that we were talking about, I'm like, but that person has danced all day, every day since they were a toddler. Right. It's it's not that they're just this amazing dancer that happened to, you know, uh, go up to the top of the musical charts and, and be known as such. They work, work, work harder than anybody else. Um, what's that old saying like uh, hard work beats talent when talent stops working hard. Exactly. And so just like sports, which I love that you're a big fan. I, I grew up an athlete. I'm still an athlete. So I love to, to discuss that as well. Most people, I think you're going to get the most productivity out of someone who might be uh, lower down the talent scale for whatever that means that works their butt off versus someone who is a natural born talent that just shows up half assed you know.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's a great. I don't know if you are you familiar with Bob Rotella. Not he's, a, not... he's one of the original sports psychologists guys, Ooh, okay. and he he's written several books, and he he worked ninety percent of his work was in the golf world with professional golfers. But he tells this great story, and it's it's interesting to me that LeBron has never spoken of this publicly, and and I I have my own reasons for that. I'm not a huge LeBron friend. But Rotella, after LeBron's first couple of years in the league, he went and worked with Bob Rotella, and it was about his his perimeter shooting and his and his free throws. That he was a, he came on this dominant sort of physical force, kind of like Shaq, but he was he had hit the ceiling already, and he worked an entire offseason with Bob Rotella, just on the mental side of the work ethic and shooting. And shooting and shooting and shooting. And he came back then and became this amazing three-point shooter and, and clutch free throw guy. And, and it's all because of that, you know, and, and you don't hear it from LeBron, but when you you want to, I forget which Rotella book it's in that he talks about this seven month period he spent with LeBron and all they did was work on his work ethic and mm-hmm. his commitment to the parts of his game that weren't already great. And that he had to improve.
1: That's impressive, Paul. I have a question for you. All I really want is for you to tell me the structure to follow to write a great screenplay. Just
3: that's a just. Wow!
1: Tell tell me the numbers. I'll color by them. All right. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Listen,
3: I. I, For anyone who, who has read the book, they'll get that joke. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, I love your content about that, and and I I had a uh, quick webinar I did just yesterday for some for some coaches, not basketball coaches. Um, and and some you know a couple of people, but one person in particular was was kind of poking at that. Yeah, but there's some formula. I'm like, well, there are those things that exist, but the question really is. What? First of all, let's start here. What is what is people's attraction or or need to 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 seek that out first? Right. Because in my TikTok content, like the stuff that will go viral is often something like that. Like they want a recipe to follow. Like, just tell me what words to say. Let's start with psychologically, since we're kind of talking about psychology. Like, why? Why is that? Is it just easy?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that's it, is what you said, is people want a recipe. I think the reason that, you know, speaking specifically about screenwriting and mm-hmm. storytelling, the reason that the, the how-to books have been so successful from Sid Field's first one all the way through Save the Cat and the others um, is because they, they convince the reader that it, it has nothing to do with writing. It has nothing to do with creativity. It has nothing to do with language. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's just math. It's here, follow this formula. This is how it's done and you will be successful at it. And people want that, especially in today's culture. You know, I, I have that thing early on in the book about the the middle schoolers that were, you know, yeah. going to be when they grow up. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was athlete, fireman, doctor, lawyer. And, you know, in 2018 or 19, whenever it was, they did it again. It was YouTube star influencer. they, People want to do the least to gain the most. And I think that's what all these books feed into is if you believe, and that's, that's why Save the Cat's been so phenomenally successful and yet never helped anyone have a professional screenwriting career, is because it says, if you just do this, you'll make a million dollars. And people love that idea. You know, all, all these books that were written by people who never wrote a screenplay in their life And this "This is how you do it, because I've read thousands of screenplays, so I'm an expert. But when you talk to the actual people that wrote the scripts, when you talk to the successful, the phenomenally successful Aaron Sorkins and Shonda Rhimes, down to the TV writers in their second, third, fourth year of staffing, none of them write like that, because they know you're not going to produce anything of quality, anything of originality it's all going to be just you know paint by numbers schlock
1: i I think that you made a good point kind of at least um indirectly there about it i I think it's important to to mention that it's not just the aaron sorkins like that are screenwriters but there are plenty of just like full-time working screenwriters like you said the tv writers that are making a living doing this thing but i think that people aspiring writers will call them or, or screenwriters only view that top level it's like that's what i that's what it is (laughs) like so there's nothing else to achieve except that and they're obviously 100
3: right i mean i i did a i can't remember i just i forget where i talked about this my mind's silly putty right now but i i i I looked this thing up for a a talk i was giving on something and realized you know now because of the strike we're on and and i'm fairly active in the guild and everything and no one's ever heard of me. You know, if you if you haven't come across my TikTok, nobody knows my name. You know, the shows I've worked on, they've been okay. You know, the movies I've written, you know, the, that have been released, people mostly don't like. And yet I've been putting screenwriter on my tax returns for 24 years in a row and I'm my success level puts me in the top 8% of all WGA members. Yet yeah, you no nobody's ever heard of me. Nobody knows my name. And that's that's what I'm talking about is is you can make a living at this. You can make a good living at this without having to be Aaron Sorkin, well, you know, and, without having to be Scott Frank. And that is
1: the way more the way more common, you know, journey right? of a writer is not a front facing. That's why they're writing. Right. They're not they're not a talent. They're not on screen yeah. typically. Right. I mean, so that is way more normal if you will than being an aaron sorkin
3: who is that's that's why the strike's so critical right now because the vast vast majority of our guild are people that that don't have millions of dollars in the bank that don't even have six figures in the bank you know we're working screenwriters we're you know just like people that you know are plumbers or work at a bank Mm. or longshoremen you know we just what we do is different
1: you said something, too, in the book, and I think it was probably following the piece about what kids wanted to be when they grew up in the 70s versus nowish, um or something like that. But it was something along the lines of um, instead of falling in love with writing – they fall in love with the idea of being a writer or something like yeah. that. Is that, does that ring a bell?
3: Yeah. It's, 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 that's basically it. There's, there's a romance to being a yes. writer and they're also, they're in love with the the potential, the yeah. outcome, the and Who they
1: you, you said something about who they might rub elbows with. Like they want to write that success, successful screenplay that puts them having meetings with all these people and they just want to like jump to that. It's not necessarily yeah. that they want to be a writer. They want that thing.
3: That's it. And, and that's, and those are the people I, cause I, I work a lot with, with, you know, newer writers, up and coming writers at either, I mean, high school age, all the way into guys retired in their sixties. And I can tell right away the ones that aren't going to have any success at it because they've written one thing or two things and they're all about, I want to sell it. I want to sell it. And then there's the other people that I love writing. I want to try and make a living at this because I love doing it so much.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think so much of it is determined by what your actual real goal is. And right. a lot of people aren't aligned with that. They don't know the answer to that question. I, I About, uh, I don't know, five years ago, I started public speaking as a way to kind of, you know, make some some income in between projects. And I had a business coach at the time, kind of friend, mentor, and, and we were writing down my goals. And I said, oh, uh, one of them, I want a TED Talk. And he was like, oh, Why? I can I got super defensive I'm like what do you, what do you mean why because it's a Ted talk right and he was like well Ted's nice but you don't need a Ted talk to be a successful public speaker and I didn't really have an answer for him why right and that's why I got defensive and kind of upset about it because I hadn't really asked myself that question and I went on and I I built a speaking career um I eventually did get a TedX talk um about 4 years later and I talk about this all the time I've made some TikToks about it zero opportunities have come from that, right? Some, some LinkedIn messages and things like that. People have found me through that, but nobody's hired me because of the TEDx talk, right? Not, not, a, not at all. And so it's similar, like my goal was completely I didn't know it wasn't to be a speaker. I just wanted people to, to write about me and talk about me, you know? Yeah. It was just an ego driven thing. So I think a lot of people suffer from that. Once that light bulb went off, Paul, okay, now I can like check myself a little bit, come back to reality and, and get to work.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of TED Talks, it made me think like one of the, you know, best known TED talkers and social media guys, Simon Sinek, um, yeah. you know, who everyone knows. And and he's got that great thing. I actually think he co-opted it from Andrew Carnegie, but but regardless, you know, he says people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it mm-hmm and and that is to me like and he makes the point of apple being creative versus microsoft being technical and you know here's here's what we do and apple's like here's why we do it mm-hmm. but i think it goes into creativity as well you know like when we're pitching something to a network or a studio they don't care about the what or the how like mm-hmm. what all the books talk about they care about the why you know the anytime you have a successful pitch in Hollywood. I guarantee you, it doesn't start with the what. It starts with why. Like, here's why this story needs to be told. Here's why I have to write the story. Mm. And you know, the why is everything.
1: It, it's such a good point, and it's t- it's a tough journey to to navigate, or or it takes some work. It takes some time and some work to get to that point to really tapping in and understanding. Well what are the types of stories that you want to tell and why? And I finally started to get there recently. And it's like a little, it's a light bulb that goes off and it's such a joyous moment, even though no work is created yet from it, but just to have that light bulb internally go off. And now we're starting to get to the point of, of, you know, one of the main points of the book, which is finding your voice. This is a big topic. And I think it's really important for people back to what we said at the very beginning of the conversation to me this applies not just to screenwriters, but to so, so many people that are being creative and maybe even those that aren't being creative. If we want to go back to basketball. Jason Williams had a completely different style than Kobe Bryant, right? Or, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I think finding your style, finding what works for you is, is a lot more important than best practices. It seems like you do too, but let's talk a little bit about first, let's establish like why voice with a capital V, as you say, is so beyond important. It sounds like it's imperative.
3: It is, it is. And, and I love that you made the point that it's not just in in writing or screenwriting, that, you know, a- athletics or any endeavor, it's it's about that. And, and for what I do, it's everything, you know? It's because, and then that's part of my frustration with the other books and what led me to write my book is, you know, you can have, the most original, unique, cool idea for a movie or a TV series. But if that script isn't written in a unique original voice, it's never going to be a super cool movie or TV series because ideas are a penny a dozen in Hollywood and, and plots and concepts and everything everyone is is overflowing with that. And what what makes one screenplay stand out from the other isn't the page count, isn't the, what people think structure is, it's the voice of the writer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk about in in the chapter on voice about people confused, like, well, when you're on a TV show, you have to write in the voice of the showrunner, And it's like, no, you don't. You know, they don't hire people they think can copy them. They hire writers with original voices. And if, if you don't have an original voice on the page, you're never gonna succeed. And that's been the problem is so many people have followed the tutelage of all these books, which tell you how and what to do everything and never talk about voice, never talk about the writing. <laughs> one of the
1: the most, the simplest points that you made and, and strongest, but it's kind of one of those things that when you hear it, you're just like, yeah, no, no shit. It,
2: that's better help H uh, E L P.
1: you were you were basically like if everyone follow if every aspiring you know screenwriter follows the rules that the guru that, uh, from the books of the gurus, then all of them would come out the same. And they do. That's why those aren't necessarily successful. And it's like that thought never crossed people's minds. It's like if I'm gonna follow the this rule that this very successful book told everybody to to follow then why would mine be any different than anybody else's because just because mine's set in outer space versus an office space that's not that's not enough to make make it stand out or make it successful and it's one of those points that is just like it's a duh statement once you think about it but we we're, we're like this and we just we get caught in that trap of needing to know the rules and, and the best practices, you know, I hear that all the time in my work too, you know, well, if it's social media land, right, how often we're we supposed to post, you know, what type of equipment do we use, yeah. what's the best platform, what hashtag strategy, yada, yada, yada. And, and that's what I help people do is like, if your message is not connecting and clear with your ideal audience, all of that is for nothing.
3: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're posting, you know, 10 times a day at the exact perfect times. If, if your message, if, if your why, if your content doesn't matter, doesn't matter.
1: So if someone was new and they heard that and they're like, well, I have this idea or a couple of ideas for, for you know, screenplays, stories that I want to tell. Is your, is your advice, and I don't want to put words in, into your mouth, but would your advice be for them to just write, just work on that and just get the story out versus, okay, now it's time for me to do my slug launch, you know, or, you know, really trying to format and find the, you know, find the right way, so to speak, to write the
3: screenplay? Yeah, com- completely. And I, okay. and, and, you know, like I when I mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the selling versus the writing and... I don't want to condemn people who just want to sell something. I just want them to be self-aware. If that's your thing, if you have this one idea and you just want to sell it, then just be self-aware about that and put everything into that. And don't pretend, don't lie to yourself. Don't fake it till you make it or all that (laughs) other garbage. And, and when you're, you're starting out, that's the thing is again, going back to what you originally talked about with the recipe, people starting out, they, they don't know what to do, you know, whatever job it is, if you've never done it, you don't know how to do it. Somebody tell me how to do this job, Mm -hmm. teach me. And so they look at these books and, you know, or they have these university professors or these social media people and they say, do it like this. And so they start doing it like this. And one of the things I I think this is in the book where I say it's, it's like, if you want to learn to play golf, but if you learn from somebody who's really bad at golf, you're never going to get good at it because you're just going to groove bad habits. You're going to be practicing the wrong way over and over and over. And that's what I run into with people who are like they want to they have an idea or, or they want to be a writer and they just are focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on page count and slug lines and what they think structure is and inciting incidents and all that. And so I tell them, and it's an answer people don't like because the, everybody oh, yeah. wants a recipe, yeah. but I tell them that doesn't exist. You just have to write. If you want your best chance at success, and again, there's no absolutes. There have certainly been people that have you know, won the screenwriting lottery doing it opposite of what I say, but they're very, 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 very much in the minority. If you want the greatest shot at success, you got to focus on becoming the best writer you can be. And becoming the best writer, like I say, screenwriting can't be taught. It can only be learned.
2: Mm -hmm. And you
3: learn it from writing and writing and writing and writing, but not the way the books tell you to write, not the way the social media people tell you to write by following formulas and stuff. You've got to find your voice your own way by not listening to all that stuff. And, and it's a long process, man. Even whether you want a career as a writer or whether you have that one idea you want to sell, you got to understand it's not going to happen in a month or six months or a year. It's going to happen as you write and rewrite and rewrite and find your voice.
1: The funny thing is the, the irony maybe is, is that for those people who are only interested in selling that one great idea they have. Uh finding your voice is still the path to give that right. the most success, right? Writing that as best you can becoming the best writer you can be even for that one idea is still the path, right? Exactly. Like, and that's, like, and
3: that's why I think those people, they're, they're more more often than not, not going to succeed is because of the fact that they just want to sell this one thing. So instead of focused on, know like we talked about the why and how can i make this the very best possible thing it can be they're focused on okay how do i get to the end how do i you know how do i write a screenplay that then i can sell really quickly and
1: that's why a lot of these books have uh uh uh, timelines on them or amount of days write a screenplay in you know two hours whatever
3: yeah Yeah. Yeah, there's a book there i forget who wrote it how to write a movie in 21 days written by somebody that never wrote a successful movie in their life
1: that's wild but they
3: can tell you how to do it in three weeks
1: (laughs) you know what's scary paul is like in in this day and age with when everyone has an you know a smartphone handy this this uh Ability of the armchair quarterbacks to put out educational content. Like, imagine the guys sitting in the living room on Sunday watching football, trying to tell you know whomever how to throw the ball, how to do this, that, and the third. Yet they haven't played since high school ball, or maybe not e- anything. Yeah. Now they all have these tools to put out content to like teach people, even even you know even more so now than uh, than these non screenwriters making screenwriting books. So this issue is across all all industries and and spaces as well because you have a lot of people that are out there um preaching best practices and there's no guarantee <laughs> that they know how to do it. I mean, I work with a lot of storytelling coaches and you know that's that's I, I am one of those. But I learned the lessons that I teach from 20 years of making documentary films mostly just me. So the people that I work with are under resourced, uh, you know, and don't have a lot of money. that might just be a one person team, and you know, I can give them something. Well, that's
3: You're you're a storyteller, man, and I and I have so much respect for documentarians because I think that's one of the most difficult uh, types of storytelling to Tuck. do it well. Yeah, and so I mean, I have tremendous respect for that. To to create a compelling narrative, compelling story when you're when you're documenting the reality yeah. of something is in incredibly difficult to do well. Well, So it's no wonder that you know what you're doing (laughs) as a storyteller.
1: Well, it's interesting. Like you have, you don't have that much control over, over the narrative, right? You kind of got to like grab on and go for the ride and you can manipulate it a little bit, of course, but, uh, it can certainly throw you a curveball, like narrative can't necessarily necessarily do. So I I appreciate that. It's, it's not easy. Um, but you, you learn a lot, you know, you know, and I learned how to, do a lot with a little I think is probably the takeaway um so I so understanding the 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 importance of voice and finding your own voice and just doing the work and becoming a better writer which takes time you know my question directly to you is like do you still like is the is what you're saying that you follow no formula at, at all, or is it that that's not as important as these things that we're talking about when you're writing a story? Paul, if you're starting a new one tomorrow, maybe not you know, a f- little further down the line, do you think of things like inciting incident? Do you think about certain story beats or turning
3: points at all? Or, I for me, and and look again, everybody's process is different, for um, sure. I am always, I'm, I'm a character guy. Everything for me starts and ends with character and emotion. And, and I believe that's what drives the car that is called story. Because if, if you imagine, you know, a story is a car going down the highway, the best stories aren't about the car. They're about the people inside the car. And, and that's my thing is, is I, I always start, with, with that. And even when I get like, there's a, I don't know if you got to it yet, but I, when I, I have a big long chapter on process in the book and I, I walked the reader through a script I wrote from my very first inception point all the way to finishing it. And it was something that it was an idea. It was an environment. It was a world before I ever had any characters or anything, which is kind of rare for me. And what's funny is I go through the whole thing. And when I got to the end, I thought it was great. I thought this thing's ready to hit the spec market. My agents are gonna love it. And I sent it to a writer friend of mine who's much much better writer than I am and, and more successful. And he's like, hey, this idea is great. You know, this, this world's super cool and unique. I don't care about your protagonist at all. So it's, it doesn't work. And that was devastating to me. And I had just missed it because I had been so consumed with the world and the story and, and how cool it could be and the, the machinations of the plot. And I had to go back, I had to, first I had to walk it off, it was so painful and I just put that thing away for months. And when I came back to it, I did a complete page one rewrite of a screenplay that had he not pointed that out to me, I would have sent it out to my agents because I thought it was ready. And when I finally came back to it with fresh eyes, and and not being so you know inside I was like oh my god he's right he's exactly right I don't care about this guy at all I have all these cool supporting characters and so when I went back in I went back in through that protagonist point of view and told the story from character and emotion and that's and then it leveled up and So there are certainly writers. I mean, I I talk about Ryan Johnson in the book and I, I love Ryan Johnson. I'm a huge fan of his ever since Brick. And, you know, he is very much an engineer and he talks about all the engineering he does before he sits down to write and he makes charts and graphs and, you know, this is connected to this and this works over here. But then in these interviews, and I've heard several with him, he always says the same thing. And he's like, but once I start writing, all that stuff kind of goes out the window and he just follows his characters. But his process is he has to put up all that scaffolding so mm-hmm. then he can tear it down. So it's like whatever works. And, and my point about, you know, the books tell you how to do it wrong is because not that Ryan Johnson does it wrong. It's that they don't tell you. To ever think about the writing and the emotion and the character relationships it's all about the scaffolding and as ryan johnson says you know once i build all that then i have to tear it down because it doesn't it's not what makes a story great
1: hmm. let me tell you uh, a quick <laughs> downside of being a documentary filmmaker is you often get friends family members I'm sure screenwriters get this too, actually uh, with, you know, great ideas like, Oh, you should make a documentary about this, this, and it's always about this world. Right. I had a, I had a friend who legitimately said, Oh, you should, we live, I live in North Carolina. And he was like, Oh, you should, you should do a documentary about the, the rising, like uh micro industry in North Carolina. You know, we used to be a tobacco state and then we, when that went down, we didn't have a lot of money. And now there's this resurgence through craft breweries all over these small towns. And I'm like, okay, well, the, What's the story? Right. I mean, you just gave me a world like an industry, but that's like, what? what's the story there? And again, that comes up every, you know, every week. There's some
3: other like you should do a documentary on Venezuela. <laughs> okay <laughs> right yeah no it's you're right it's uh, you, all writers get the same thing of people like you know hey you should write about this okay what's the Thanks. story yeah uh, yeah yeah
1: i was just sitting here waiting for an idea i appreciate you guys yeah i learned uh,
3: that really a, a really super quick story when i was starting out um very early in my career i was really blessed to get hired by Stephen j cannell who ended up becoming a really good friend and stuff before he passed away and and we were doing this pilot together and i learned something from him so early on which is exactly what you're talking about is i had this one we were talking about things and i i came to him one day and i was like i got this great idea for a script man and i and i pitched him this incredibly provocative opening you know about oh this happens and this person <laughs> comes down in this and he's like listen to me and he goes yeah and i go i go that's cool right and he's like what's the story and I go, well, well, it's about this, you know, it's about this world and this stuff. And, and he's like, yeah, I know that. But what's it about? What's the story? And that just blew my mind because as much stuff as I had in my head, I had no story. Know, <laughs> had
1: you no know. story. And you probably felt a lot like me when my uh, mentor was asking me why a TED talk when you didn't really have an answer. You're like, well, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean why?
3: Right, cause it's cool, man.
1: Right, did you not hear what I just explained to you? Oh man, that's perfect. This Ryan Johnson uh, segment uh, reminded me of. Talk to me a little bit about the concept, the the cliche, if you will, of write what you know. You explain that in such a unique way, I think, and it's so important. Um, can you just take it away with that as a prompt?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So write what you know has, has been as debated as writer's block, probably, in, in <laughs> throughout history. And, you know, there's people on both sides of the fence, and, and I hear working professionals that go, oh, write what you know is so limiting, it's terrible advice, and they don't understand what write what you know means. because and, and I've done the deep dive on these origin stories and everything, and what people mistakenly think write what you know is, is that if you're a plumber, then you have to write stories about plumbing or being a plumber or you know if you're a race car driver you have to write stories about race cars and 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 races and that's not what write what you know is what write what you know means is not the external thing it's the internal it's it's write what you feel write what you what excites you what turns you on what turns you off what terrifies you that's what you know and and you know i, I make the uh, the example i use in the in that chapter in the book is You know, you can be a a transgender BIPOC teenager living in the desert, and you can still write a story about old rich white men on Wall Street and infuse it with what you know. Mm -hmm. Because write what you know is not knowing how Wall Street works. Write what you know is take that, that character, like that person, they know what it feels like to be marginalized, maybe to be ignored to be, you know, disregarded or to be loved for who they are without any any you know societal preconceptions laid on. Like that's what you know. And you can infuse what you know into any story at all. It has not, you know, if if you're a plumber and you want to write a story set in the year 3033, you know, some giant sci-fi action epic, you don't have to have plumbers there i mean that's (laughs) going to give you some verisimilitude that'll be cool that you can infuse but what you know is what you feel you know as a person not as a plumber right what you know is internal it's not external this
1: whole finding your voice right what you know thing it is all an internal journey yeah and i think people get so consumed with the output they don't spend enough time with the on the input right and like diving into who you are so many of us work and exist and never look inward and like ask ourselves, like, why do I feel that way about this thing? And I, I get really excited about this type, this topic because when when I work with people, it's often about uh, finding and identifying your unique perspectives on the world. I feel like I, that was what my TEDx talk was about, by the way, which is like, even an example I use is if we're all documentary filmmakers, we all have $100,000 or whatever the number is to make a documentary about the same topic. And there's a hundred of us. A hundred. Uh, there should be a hundred different films, right? Because we are all different people with different backgrounds, different experiences, different perspectives on the world, and therefore our approach to that topic, whether it be you know number two pencils or whatever it might be, or the the craft beer industry of North Carolina, it, it should be different. But so many of us look for the best practices, and don't and don't look at like how we view the world differently. And this is the journey I I think for. Understanding what you know Like what are the things That you experience and, and understand I've You know So I think that a lot of people Kind of have these walls up Because it's a, it's hard work That That's not easy either To like really tap in And be like Oh Well I know what it's like To feel rejected Or feel like an outcast Or et cetera et cetera Because sometimes those feelings Aren't so so fun right But it's, it's the way I think And it sounds like you do too That we really we really find the type of work that we're supposed to be creating.
3: Yeah. And that's, that's my frustration with, with all the, the screenwriting books. Cause I really, I really believe, cause you don't find this nearly as much in the prose writing world. Like there are obviously how-to books and gurus in the prose world, but from my experience of, of my deep, deep research with all this is, there are many more, you know, how to quote unquote prose books that talk about the writing and the language and the yeah. syntax and the screenwriting books. None of them talk about that. They talk about what they mistakenly call structure. They talk about the scaffolding, you know, the inciting incident here or like the ridiculous of the cat book, like just have a cool title and a cool log line and you're off to the races and, and it's, wait, wait. it's such a disservice. To the storyteller, yeah. to the creator, because it's, it's exactly what you said. It, it, it has to be about that, the internal stuff of, of getting that onto the page is what's going to separate you and make your script stand out with your unique voice and your unique turn of phrase and your unique language as opposed to a homogenized, you know, well, here I hit my page count, my inciting incidents on page seven, my, my second act midpoint turn is on page, you know, 63 it's nobody cares, man. And it's, and I, 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 it's, it's amazing to me because from my, my TikTok I still, I get a lot of pushback at times from these, I'll just call them save the cat apologists and stuff that are debating me on this. And yet when I look at the people that are debating me, they've had no success at yeah. all at, at what they're debating me with. You know, it goes back to the Harlan Ellison quote. It's, you know, you're not entitled to your opinion. Oh, you're only that. entitled to your informed opinion.
1: That was so good. Yes. Um, Aaron, I saw a uh, period of time, I know that you're connect, uh, connected with a no, Micah Haley. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. He had the same same battle going on when he was talking about film versus digital. And he was like, "You don't need it. Like, you nobody can tell. Like, you don't need it." And there was a million, you know, non or uh, filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers that are just throwing out Christopher Nolan, <laughs> Christopher Nolan, <laughs> and it's like, bro, good. Right. You know, Christopher Nolan can 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 do that, but the point that Michael was trying to make is like, yeah, but you know, you can't. You yeah, know, people are might...
3: not Chris Nolan. You're what? not Spielberg. Yeah. So, right,
1: and also the point is that the audience, you know, can't can't necessarily tell tell the difference. No right. matter if you have people that are kind of loyalist or whatever we might w- want to call them, but he was just the, the point I'm trying to make is very, is exactly what you just said. Every, you know, whatever the percentage was of people who have never done it, in the comments, it was a high one, <laughs> like probably yes. ninety plus that were just you know they're just fans, and that's 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 the difference. But We've given we've given, you know, these uh, uh, we we have access to the the thoughts of armchair quarterbacks uh, constantly these days. So we have to be wary of that, I think. Um, What's your take on I'm shifting, shifting gears a little bit. Um, I know we're probably coming to the end of the conversation, but I just wanted to ask what you thought about, you know, media has always evolved and there's always a little weird kind of gray area when when it when it does of like. We're still kind of hanging on to this while we're moving into that before that transition fully happens. So whatever happens, I mean, Hollywood is being disrupted now to a degree. You're nodding your head, so you agree with that, at least in concept. Um, This is a big, broad question, so we can take it anywhere we want to, but the industry is evolving. Let me just put a period at the end of that. There's new content creators that are being elevated, and there's new content creation. Uh, that's uh, that's available and accessible. So kind of my question is, as we go through this, um, what things, attributes, approaches, tactics, whatever, stay with what it seems to be evolving to and what changes? And like how does one, <laughs> how does one ride that line? Because you'll you'll have people that will dig in to what we used to do in the past. I think where I'm going with this. Sorry, this question. I'm just forming it as as I'm as I'm I'm thinking out loud, kind of. But I think a lot of people think that success as a storyteller can only be what it used to be. Yeah. And to me, I think that there's a lot of great unique ways coming out f- to tell stories um, that we didn't have in years past. And maybe people are holding on, like I was, to the TEDx. Does that make sense? Can you,
3: you I completely agree okay. with you, man. Okay. And I, and I think I think you're 100% right. I think one of the things I was telling somebody recently about this strike is that I this is unlike any other strike we've ever had, I believe. And it's and it's one of the reasons that it's a paradigm shift for our industry, you know, is because we're not striking against the studios anymore. You know, I mean as recently as 3 years ago, you know, we have, we go through this every 3 years. The AMPTP was sort of dominated by Paramount and Warner Brothers. They were the big gorilla of studios that all the other studios listened to. That doesn't exist anymore. Now it is dominated by tech companies. Apple and Amazon and even Netflix what we do and when I say we I mean WGA writers it is such a small small percentage of those companies revenue. Mm. They don't care how long the strike goes because what we provide for Apple or Amazon and 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 to a lesser extent Netflix is not what we provide for Paramount or Warner right. Brothers, who and, are And who, I'm who, paying
1: who, Apple's bills right here.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's like like it's and so that's why they, you know, when they come to the table the couple of times they have in this hundred and fifty, how many days is they're just like no, here's our offer, just like it was in May, take it or leave it, you know? Oof. So my but where I'm going with that to circle back to your question is the silver lining of all this is I believe there is a renaissance coming in the storytelling world, in the in the world of of film and television and and visual storytelling, because if they could have their way. They want, you know, 75% of the content to be AI generated, so they don't have to pay health insurance and pay into 401k and all that stuff and, you know, eliminate the writers as much as they can. And I don't think until the audience becomes AI, I don't think they're going to be satisfied with that because it's a version of the homogenization that we talked about earlier with all the Save the Cat disciples. And where true creativity, true, unique, new, fascinating storytelling is going to come from are the rebels and the, and the humans that are out there with their iPhones shooting their stuff, throwing their content up on the internet, you know, making original stories that are from humans about humans that aren't derivative, you know, because AI is really not as smart as people think it is. All it does is take in data that pre exists and processes it and spits it out in a different way. And it can't create, it can't invent. And I think that that's where we're headed. And when you look at the industry, I totally agree with you that this shift has been coming prior to this year in the sense of, you look at movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once or you know Barbarian, if you're a horror fan and stuff, those movies would have never been made just 5 years ago let alone 10 or 15 years ago and the audience is so much more sophisticated now and and has such a deeper hunger to be satisfied with something that's unique and not formulaic and not the same old you know thing we've seen forever and ever if you look at the most successful television series of the last 5 years or so they look nothing like the television series that were successful 10 15 20 years ago and that's a good thing, I think. I think. I think we are absolutely headed that way. And this strike, which is, if you really want to, you know, dumb it down to its most basic thing, and I understand I'm, I'm taking a big leap here, but it's basically about we want to keep everything the exact same and very homogenized and very by the numbers. And people don't want that. You know, that's not what's working. Look at Barbie. You know, I love the fact that, that the, the head of Warner Brothers is now taking all the credit for Barbie saying, oh, it's because of how we marketed that movie. That's why it was successful. It's like, no, it's not. You started marketing that thing after it was released and became a huge success. And it's because it was something that none of us had seen before, yep. you know, and that's what that's where we're headed, which I think is actually a good thing.
1: And talk about voice. I mean, Greta Gerwig just oh. was stamped all over that. Are you it was, kidding me? <sighs>
3: exactly. Yeah, that's and insane. that's the whole, I don't know if you know the sort of the, the development history of that. Barbie as a movie has been in floating around Hollywood for 15 years. And so many, I read a, an Amy Schumer draft, which was terrible. And, and everything <laughs> was just sort of mocking the Barbie of it all. And, you know, Margot Robbie came, got involved and was like, this could be great, but I don't want to be Barbie. I want to do something different. And she's the force that said, I won't do this unless Greta Gerwig writes and directs it." And they brought Greta in and Greta's like, I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to yeah, write what I know. That just
1: gave me chills. Cause yeah. it's like, if you know Greta's career, it, it felt like as an audience member that she's been like, this is what she's been working towards. Like all those steps and films she's made along the way have been leading to this, this one. So that's Absolutely. such a cool opportunity for her because yeah, I don't think maybe no one could have done it with her touch. It rode that line so well um, right. between and that's, and
3: that's it. And it's like, to, to stay on Barbie a second, like there were so many versions in the last, you know, 15 years, 10, 10, 15 years, so much money paid out to writers. So many times the screenplay was in development with different actors and different directors. And it, thank God it never worked. They never, because it just was flat. Cause it was just like, this is just a, a toy. And Greta Gerwig didn't make the toy the focused she wrote her story in her voice, her way. And Margot Robbie tapped into that. And the Barbie and Ken of it all really became secondary.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's, I mean, and I think that's where we're headed. People aren't gonna be satisfied anymore with, you know, the buddy cop film. Like, it's just, it's we're in a, we're in a different world, man. And, and I think that's great. For the up and coming creators is and again, it it goes back to my thing of you have to trust yourself, you have to trust your voice, you have to trust your experience, your internal, you know, soul. And that's what is gonna, people are going to be attracted to.
1: Mm. My friend, I think that is the perfect stopping point for today's conversation. Uh, That's, that's the part that will persist. Is having your voice, no matter what type of content you create. Paul, I appreciate your time so much, man. This was a joy.
3: I loved it. I loved it, man. Great getting to know you. And uh, and, and I, I hope people get something out of it. I just enjoyed talking with you. For me,
1: yeah, me too. Me too. Totally. Uh, well, I appreciate it. And I'll, uh, I'll see you out there in TikTok land, my friend.
3: All right, buddy. Take care. Right. Bye.
1: My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a story coaching and consulting company that builds online education, in-person and virtual training, and digital products that help businesses master storytelling to find their ideal customers and market to them effectively. You can learn more at sixsecondstories.com and purchase the book Six Second Stories at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or rainbennett.com slash stories.